Thank you for listening to this audio from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website, trinityspartanburg.com. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. We're going to turn to John chapter 13, and we're going to pick up at verse 12, although preaching 18 through 30. Pick up at 12 for a bit of context. This is the word of the Lord. It is eternally true. So when he, Jesus, had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet... You also ought to wash one another's feet. I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I do not speak of all of you, I know the ones I have chosen. But it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. The disciples began looking at one another and at a loss to know of which one he was speaking. There was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. So Simon Peter gestured to him and said to him, tell us who it is of whom he is speaking. He, leaning back thus on Jesus' bosom, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus then answered, That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. Now, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, buy the things we have need for, need of for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. So after the morsel, he went out immediately, and it was night. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we look at this passage that your spirit would be at work in our hearts. Father, that your spirit would encourage us where we need encouragement and warn us where we need warning. Lord, work through this. We are very thankful to have your word. And we know that it always goes out and accomplishes the purpose for which you set it forth. And so... We ask that it would 
it would work faith in us. It would work fear in us. And Father, that we would love you and your Son more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. So we're back to the upper room where Jesus ate that final meal with his disciples. You'll remember from a few weeks ago that we focused on Jesus washing the feet of those men, those 12 men, and Peter in his typical style, style we see throughout the Gospels, uh, was outspoken and attempted to correct Jesus and, and uh, correct what he was about to do. Now the, the focus in the room shifts away from Jesus and the apostles and Peter and his, his interaction. And it shifts immediately toward the one who would betray Jesus, a man named Judas Iscariot, whom Scripture calls the son of perdition. He's called the son of perdition. And when you're the son of something, that means that you're destined, you're connected, you're destined, you most certainly will become what you are the son of. And he's the son of damnation. The son of perdition. He, it literally means that he was one destined to be destroyed, destined to, be, to perish, destined to hell. And that is what scripture assigns to him. So Jesus, that night in the upper room, I mean, the, there's so many intense things going on in that upper room. And so much tension, and Jesus feeling the weight of everything, he explained to those 12 men that they should wash one another's feet, they should love and serve one another. In verse 17, he emphasizes that blessedness comes through, you know, not just thinking about those things, but actually doing them. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. So from teaching them to be humble, to, from teaching them to die to self, to set aside their ego, to serve other people, he turned his attention to the one in the room that would refuse to do that. The one who was motivated by far different things than service to others. He turns to the one who would be motivated to act not out of love for God, but out of just a petty, but very, very common love of money. For 30 pieces of silver, he would betray the man he had followed for three years. Judas had heard all the sermons of Jesus. He had seen all the miracles of Jesus. He had watched Jesus nightly go off by himself so that he could pray to his father. He had been sent out two by two with the others and perhaps even himself performed some 
amazing miracles. Healings, casting out of demons. He had been given the responsibility also. He had, a, he had an office among the apostles and he was the treasurer of the apostles. Uh, but all along, remember from the previous chapter, Judas used to do what? He used to help himself to the money that was in the money box. He'd just help himself to it. He didn't feel any obligation to, to be faithful in administering that office of treasurer he, he, he took from it. Remember what he said after Mary wasted that that big vial of perfume, that very costly perfume of pure nard. This is what it says at the beginning of chapter 12. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples who was intending to betray him, said, Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor people? And then the scripture goes on and opens up his heart, it says, now he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore, Jesus said, let her alone so that she may, be, may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. <clears throat> and so fundamentally, the man who betrayed Jesus was a, a lover of money. That's, that was his, his desire, his main uh, identity, right? Lover of money. And being a lover of money, I'm sure all this talk of Jesus about washing one another's feet, of humbling oneself, of lowering yourself for the blessing of others, it probably didn't compute with this lover of money. He's like, yeah, those things are great. You know, they're neat, but I'd rather have money. Maybe it didn't compute. Perhaps at worst, maybe Judas sat there and thought, everything you're saying, Jesus, is a betrayal of my God, mammon. You know, I don't want that. You are betraying the one whom I serve, mammon. And I mean, didn't, didn't the others sitting around the table, like Judas, realize that they had a cash cow in front of them? They could make a lot of money through Jesus. He heals. We could start charging for that. I mean, they, this, they, they, could, make, they could make a lot of money. And so, so Jesus, you know, Judas is, is looking on this whole scene and, and very likely, because he did not have the Holy Spirit, he's thinking these wicked thoughts. He's, he's just reveling in them. So on the night of Jesus' crucifixion, hours before Jesus' death, Jesus calls out that idolater right in their midst. One of his final acts, calling out that idolater. And Jesus, after he says, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. He says, I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen, but it is that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread and has lifted up his heel against me. That's a verse from Psalm 41. 
He's quoting the Psalms. Psalm 41.9 puts it this way, Even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. Jesus had washed Judas' feet, and instead of reveling in the graciousness of the Lord, he has his mind on money. His loyalty is fixed elsewhere, having been purchased for how much? 30 measly pieces of silver. His loyalty had been purchased. He has his priorities set, and and looking back at verse 2 of this chapter, those priorities are a delight to the devil. Notice what it says in verse 2. During supper, the devil, having already put it, put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him. He's put that thought into Judas's heart. All right? Judas has had that thought in his heart for a while. Judas has executed that. His work is perfectly satanic. It is fully evil. There was one man in the world who would betray Jesus Christ. Just one. Son of perdition. There was one man in the world that was prone in that way to the attack of Satan. There was one man in the world who thought that it was to his advantage that he do some work for the chief priests who wanted Jesus dead and gone. Undoubtedly, Judas thought he was doing the work of God. And Judas was open to this kind of sin because, dear brothers and sisters, he loved money. It's just so simple. The love of money, you see by Judas' example, is the root of all kinds of evil. Is it possible for us to learn this lesson? Is it possible for us to this sink down into our bones? How many people have you seen betray the Lord because they loved money? Have you seen it? Has it happened? How many ministries have been revealed as simply a ploy to increase people's wealth? That leadership team, you know? How many ministries like that? That's exactly what Judas wanted out of the the men in that upper room. Let's go to Wheaton and start a ministry where we can make a lot of money. And how many of us find that same temptation in our own hearts? Your joy rises and falls according to what day of the week it is and whether that's a payday. Oh, I know it. We would gladly embrace some sin if if that embrace meant just a little more money and a little more comfort. We all face that temptation. It's a common temptation of man. We have to be be very careful about this. And Judas is an example of a man who was not careful at all. Jesus then says to the men gathered together in the upper room, from now on I am telling you before it comes to pass so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives 
me receives him who sent me. Now, what is he saying here? Seems to break out of the flow a little bit. He's warning his men that one of them is about to fall away so that when it does happen, they shouldn't get thrown off by it. Right? I'm telling you what's coming. It's going to be very difficult. Don't be thrown off by it. Don't let that, um, don't let that move you an inch. Right? He's telling them not to lose their faith when... Um, when they see the Messiah betrayed by this man. And then with that solemn, truly, truly statement, he encourages them to persevere in the work of carrying his name out to the nations, right? Though one of them would fall away, the rest of them would be sent out and would, would uh, find that they were received by many and that that reception would actually be a receiving of Christ and those who have Christ have the Father, one who sent Jesus. So Jesus is bracing these men. He's, he's, trying to, he's trying to get them ready for what's coming. He's bracing the men not to be thrown off by the wicked deeds of one man, the one man who is very close. And so there's still work to do in the work of preaching the, the redeeming love of God in Christ would take place, even though Judas would... would sell Jesus to the chief priests. Now, it is true, isn't it, brothers and sisters, when someone close to us turns from the faith or commits himself to a life of hating God or serving his lusts, it causes us to question our own faith. Has that happened to you? You know, when someone who is solid turns from God to serving themselves, it, it, it does, it, it's difficult to process. Or perhaps the difficulty is because of this. When we see that happen, it tempts us to actually envy that man's supposed freedom to sin. It just causes us to envy the wicked. Look at the life he lives now. Look at the pleasure he can give himself to. Look at the things that that he just revels in. He seems so happy, right? His eyes bulge with fatness. He, he, he always eats the, the good stuff high on the hog, right? He can get up and eat breakfast and go to work and make a living and laugh and enjoy life while pursuing fully his lusts, giving himself to sin, going from pleasure to pleasure. And we look on this, and if we're not careful, if we're not thinking right, if we're not thinking about, uh, or if we're only thinking about the here and now, we begin to envy that person. We have to be reminded that our task is set before us by God. We have to be reminded, as Jesus did here with those disciples, that we have a mission, right? And at the end of that mission of self-denial and sacrifice, there is an eternal Sabbath in the ocean of God's love in the new heavens and new earth where we get to eat lobster and steak. biscuits, and all the macaroni and cheese you could ever want.
carbs. Jesus is reminding his men that they have work to do and they should not allow the wickedness of this one man to deflect them from the work. They, they too want 30 pieces of silver. All the men in that room want 30 pieces of silver. They too want to have praise from the chief priests, the Pharisees, and the scribes. They too want to have their good things in this life, right? Because those are temptations that are common to man. All the men in that room are struggling with this save Jesus Christ. So, they must not look on Judas and envy. They are the ambassadors of God who must take up their cross and follow him and know their good things in the life to come. Jesus is telling them what is about to happen and straightening them to resist going the same way as Judas, even though in each one of their hearts is everything and every desire that would lead them that way. Verse 21, when Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified and said, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. There it is, just right out in the open. One of you Think of the scene. They're all sitting around, reclining around Jesus. And he says, one of you will betray me. Now notice what it says about Jesus. What happened to him before he said those words? It says that he became troubled in spirit. Three times in the Gospel of John, we read about Jesus being troubled in spirit. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, that was Mary, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, remember at the tomb of Lazarus, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. The other time is this, just in the previous chapter, now my soul has become troubled and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. And then there's our passage where he's described as being troubled in spirit three times. And so the three things that caused Jesus to be troubled in spirit, seeing the grief of those who had experienced the death of a friend. Secondly, contemplating the work of dying on the cross for the sins of the world. And then third, here, seeing one of his men about to betray him. Those were the three things that, that caused him trouble of spirit. In other words, sin caused Jesus to be troubled in spirit. Sin caused him to be disturbed inwardly, agitated inwardly. Sin which led to the physical death of a friend. Sin which required his death and the wrath of his father. And sin which led to the betrayal of one of his men closest to him during his ministry. The first two we understand, right? Death. The sin of the world do at times cause us trouble in spirit, ought to cause us trouble in spirit. The third, the betrayal of one closest to us, should also make sense, right? Breaches in the one flesh union of marriages, siblings hating each other and then arguing bitterly over the inheritance when their parents die. 
men we started businesses with who, who kick us to the curb when, when it finally prospers. Beloved church members who leave to pursue their sin even or especially when under discipline. The love of the church. Right? Friends who use us, parents who abuse us. Betrayal is bitter to us. It's bitter to us as it was to Jesus. Jesus, unlike us, never once sinned against Judas. Think of that. And even still, Judas turned against him. And that betrayal, dear brothers and sisters, was bitter to Jesus. It is in these relationships that we long, it's in our relationships that we long for loyalty and commitment and love and purity, right? But sin has broken those things. And lest we point the the finger, we have all been disloyal and we have all broken commitments and lacked love and contributed impurity to our relationships. Even as we suffer at others' sin, we have contributed our own sin. Yet we know, we know deeply that this is not the way things are to be. We do groan at times at our best moments over the lack of these things. Calvin makes this remark on Jesus' trouble of soul. He says, a crime so monstrous and detestable struck Christ himself with horror when he saw how the incredible wickedness of one man had polluted that sacred order in which the majesty of God ought to have shone with brightness. Right? That the apostles, that church, right? One man had broken that glorious assembly. And, and Jesus looks on that sort of breach and it horrifies him. Death, the cross, and betrayal struck Jesus with trouble in his spirit. It, it, it put horror in his heart, as Calvin said it. And yet, his horror at Judas's betrayal does not um, prompt Jesus to flee from the task before him or cower in a depressive state or, or push the other 11 out the door without any encouragement, right? Or it doesn't lead him not to see some utility in Judas' actions. So he says, matter of factly, in the midst of the meal, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. He knew what was going to happen, and he knew that it was the first step in his work of atoning for the sins of the world on the cross. And remember, he's pointing out these things so that when it occurs, the remaining apostles might not be stumbled by it. Jesus knew about it, tells them, and so when it does happen, it will be further instance of their awe of the Savior and not a reason to, to, to wallow in despair. So Jesus' words then trigger... As you might expect, some chatter among the apostles. They begin discussing who Jesus is talking about. It's natural that that would happen. It's not a large group. One of you is going to betray me. 
What did he just say? Who is it? Did he say somebody's name? Who is it? Who does he mean? They begin discussing who Jesus is talking about. Notice in verse 22 that it says they began looking at one another. That's how it started, you know? Just looking about the room, sizing one another up. looking to see if anybody blushed, looking to see if anybody dropped their eyes and didn't make eye contact, trying to identify who, who was this one. They, they had no idea who it was that he was talking about, but now that their curiosity has peaked, they won't let it go. So John the Apostle, the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's stated many times in this gospel, this is the first time, is reclining right next to or near Jesus. He can just lean over and be right in his face, right? Right next to him. So Peter, seeing how close John, and notice Peter is not right next to Jesus. That's interesting, isn't it? Peter. Uh, no, it's John that was closest. So Peter, seeing how close John was, begins gesturing to him. Maybe across the room. You know, like. And then ask, and then just ask him to ask Jesus who he's talking about. So John leans back very close to Jesus and says, Lord, who is it? Lord, who is it? Think about what Jesus is doing here. Imagine that you were in a board meeting and the CEO walks in the room and says, one of you has given company secrets to our competition. What would you do? Well, there, there would be an instant response, even if you were innocent, uh, to think about your actions. You know, and then after you did that careful two-second analysis, you would either want to know specifically who he was talking about, or you would begin to point the finger at others so that you would deflect attention away from yourself. Uh, Jesus is using this moment, these vague words, one of you is going to betray me, to challenge everyone present to examine themselves. He's challenging all of them to examine themselves. Calvin says Christ appears to be somewhat unkind in inflicting this torture for a time on those who were innocent. Yet as anxiety of this kind was profitable to them, Christ did them no injury. It is proper that when the children of God have heard the sentence of the ungodly, they should themselves feel uneasiness that they may sift themselves and guard against hypocrisy, for this gives them an opportunity of examining themselves in their life. Right? This is why we excommunicate the unrepentant publicly. It causes us all to contemplate our sin and to contemplate the fact that we have in many cases committed the very same sin that that person is being excommunicated for. How many times had those men been unfaithful in their thoughts to Jesus Christ? I think every one of those men in the upper room probably would have been saying, 
not, it's not me, but boy, that could be me. That has been me. And so Jesus is using this generic question to afflict the consciences of all present for their good. The one conscience there that was probably not afflicted by this vague statement was Judas's. From Matthew's gospel, we read of this exchange that occurred right at this point. In Matthew's gospel, it says this, Jesus said, the Son of Man is to go just as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Still generic though. And then you know what happens next? Judas pipes up. And Judas, who was betraying him, said, Surely not I, Rabbi. And Jesus then says to him, You have said it yourself. <laughs> Surely not I. Surely not I. That's, that's the... I mean, he's already got the 30 pieces of silver. He's already done the deed, right? And, and, and surely not I is the words of a seared conscience, a conscience that is dead and not functioning anymore. Even though, um, I mean, the, the definition of a seared conscience is a broken and unalive conscience. In John's gospel, we read, the answer, we read of the answer that Jesus gave to John. That is the one for whom I shall dip the morsel and give it to him. And so basically what Jesus is saying to John is, watch and see. You'll find out. So when he had dipped the morsel, he took it and gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. So John knew at that moment who it was who would betray him. But what about the rest? They didn't know. It appears from verses 28 through 30. Now, one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to, but, but no one knew, no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. He said to Judas, what you do, do quickly. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was telling him to buy the things that they have need of for the feast. Well, they're in the midst of the feast. They don't, I mean, too late. But that's the sort of thing you might be thinking. Is there something we need? What is it? Or else that he should give something to the poor. You know, go give something quickly to the poor. They don't understand what is going on, and so it appears that they did not hear what Jesus said to John and therefore understand the action of Jesus dipping the morsel and giving it to Judas. They're all left in the dark. Now, immediately upon him receiving the chunk of bread dipped in the wine from Jesus, something happened to Judas. Something happened to him. The text says this, after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Now, it should be remembered that he was already a pawn of Satan, right? He was doing the bidding of Satan already. He was following all the suggestions of Satan already. Remember the beginning of chapter 13, Satan had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. But here, 
Judas has reached an utterly desperate point. Utterly desperate point. Satan is not merely influencing him by suggestion, but has now entered into him. Whereas he previously he was prone to listen to the voice of his father, Satan, now his will is so in line with Satan that it can be said that Satan lives within him. Satan now has, as Ryle puts it, full and entire possession of his heart. Up to this time he was in it, but now he possessed it. Calvin puts it this way, for as the saints make gradual progress, and in proportion to the new gifts by which they are continually enlarged, they are said to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So in proportion, as wicked men provoke the anger of God against themselves by their ingratitude, the Lord deprives them of His Spirit, of all light of reason, indeed of all human feeling, and then delivers them unreservedly over to Satan. I mean, if you were out at the abortion clinic yesterday, you would have met some people who are unreservedly handed over to Satan. Unreservedly handed over to Satan. Blasphemers of God, blasphemers of Jesus, blasphemers of the Father, blasphemers of the Holy Spirit, mockers of the saints, mockers of the sacred, um, standing and spitting on people Scripture, you know, just completely handed over, playing satanic music, flying the satanic flag. This is all going on at the abortion clinic that, that you're not ministering at. It's brutal to be out there. The, the six of us that go out there hate it. It feels defiling, right? But but Satan can't reach us. We're in Christ. We can stand there and the, 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 the minions of Christ and the demons can do, go all around us, but they cannot afflict us. But those people are handed over to Satan. So, after Ryle and, and Calvin make this point of, you know, that there's just like there's progressive sanctification, there's progressive degradation when it comes to pursuing evil to the point where you are unreservedly given to Satan. Um, what do they go on to say after that? They both go on to say that we better contemplate this example and properly fear God. If we do not and we entertain the suggestions of the devil, one may, you know, one may get to the point where God gives that person over entirely. That's the defiling nature of sin. You know, it starts with just a thought in your mind. It moves to a certain sort of uh, thing you pursue on the internet. Maybe it's just innocent TikTok, you know, flipping. And then it gets to something where you're just like, well, I'm sick of looking, you know, it'd be better if I could touch. And then it just gets, your, your flesh gets more and more demanding of you, right? And more and more perverse. And more and more fueling you to go after the perverse. 
And then you just do it. You give yourself to the perverse. And you're being progressively degraded to the point where you begin to resent God and his laws and his rules. And God will say, well, go follow your father, Satan. We must not entertain even the suggestions of the devil, right? And every time I bring this up, I feel like we need to be reminded that Scripture portrays Satan and his demons as very real forces and persons in this life. Everybody thinks I'm an idiot for thinking that. But if you believe Scripture and you don't believe that, you're the idiot. Because Scripture puts them forward as real, dangerous, evil forces that work in this world. There are three things churches today don't like to talk about. Guess what they are? Sin, hell, and Satan. Sin, hell, and Satan. We just don't want to talk about those things. And not talking about them makes us think that, well, they're not that dangerous or they're not that real, right? But we drastically underrate the influence of Satan if we do that. Then we come across verses like Peter's letter and, you know, Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And this from James' pen, resist the devil and he will flee from you. And this from Paul's pen, put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil and do not give the devil an opportunity. And this from John, the one who practices sin is, in the, is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. And in the last book of the Bible, we read this description, the serpent of old who is called the devil and Satan, and we are told that he does this work. He deceives the whole world. And of course, in Matthew chapter 4, we learn that the devil personally tempted Jesus in the desert. And so Jesus knows firsthand the power of the devil, of the evil one, and knows how, how he attempts to deceive people by promising them something which will cost them their soul. So the first thing when we talk about Satan is to remind you that he is real and he is still out there doing his work of deception. He is good at it. He's so good at it that most of the time that he afflicts you, you think he's an angel of light. That's how good he is at it. He will convince you that following his will is good for you. He, he will attempt to convince you, as he did with Judas, that some particular sin is actually a virtue. And as soon as he convinces you of this, he will begin to entirely devour you. Ryle says, once let a man begin tampering with the devil and he never knows how far he may fall. Trifling with the first thoughts of sin, 
making light of evil ideas when first offered to our hearts, allowing Satan to talk to us and flatter us and put bad notions into our hearts and mind. All this may seem a small matter to many. It is precisely at this point that the road to ruin often begins. He that allows Satan to sow wicked thoughts will soon find within his heart a crop of wicked habits. Happy is he who really believes that there is a devil and believing watches and prays daily that he may not be taken in by his temptations. And Calvin says, we, we ought therefore to walk diligently in the fear of the Lord, lest if we overpower his goodness by our wickedness, he at length gives us up to the rage of Satan. So are we resisting the devil so that he flees from us? Is there any fight in us against the temptations he offers to us? It is undoubtedly true that he who is in us, the Holy Spirit, is stronger than he who is in the world, the devil. But that does not mean that we are then able to forget about him and free not to fight against him. Judas heard all Jesus' sermons and observed with his eyes all those miracles we read about and in the end did the devil's will. The strongest Christians are those who are acutely aware of their own weakness and susceptibility to Satan's suggestions. Will we fight? Will we fight? Will we fight just the subtle wickedness that we give ourselves to? The little suggestions. You know, one thought comes in. For example, you think about, you, you teach on friendship, and you, you start thinking about the, the revoice movements, you know, and how it's, you know, that's just, maybe that is just about friendship. That isn't about homosexual desire. That isn't about sin. It's just really about covenanted friendships. That's how it goes. And then you shut your discernment off. And then you just keep going down those roads, right? And you don't think that we might be op- that Satan may be suggesting things to us and we've just lost our fight. But we must fight. Now one final thing because He is doing the will of the devil. Judas was happy, even compelled to leave the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was happy to get out of there. Happy to get out of this last meal with these these dudes, right? And Jesus pushes him over to it. What you do, do quickly. And notice in verse 30, it says, And after receiving the morsel, he went out immediately. And it was night. We could say that Judas had made it to the point where he would resist, not the devil, but the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ would flee from him. Just as Adam and Eve fled from the presence of God after they broke his command, so Judas flees from Jesus while doing the bidding of the evil one. And out went Judas from around that table, from around that warmth, from around that love, that love where Jesus had humbled himself to wash their feet. 
And around that table, and what does it say at the very end? It says, he went out into the night. He went out into the dark. He left the light and went into the dark. This means more than a casual remark about the time. It is to say that Judas was of the night. And may that not be true of any of us here. Rather, since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. Amen? We're of the light. The light fights against the darkness. The darkness will fight against you, and you must be ready to engage in it and not give it any place, as Judas did. And of course, you know how his life ended. In an act of murder, he murdered himself. And he split open his guts as he fell, and he just exploded all over the earth, his blood in the ground. 